You're listening to Critical Faith, a podcast about religion and public life sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student here at ICS. On Critical Faith, we'll explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We'll hear from researchers, activists, educators, students, and more as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component of so many of our lives. Along the way, we'll also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, spiritualities, and communities. In our last episode, we heard a lecture from Neil DeRue, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the King's University in Edmonton, Alberta. He talked about material spirituality, a way of thinking about our spiritual lives informed by a philosophical movement called phenomenology. I said in the introduction to that episode that if things got a little too heady, we would work that out later on. Well, here we are working it out later on. In this episode, I interview Neil about his paper, but also about some of the themes that have motivated his career in philosophy as a Christian scholar. The interview was done immediately following the paper, and again, like last week, we've got some close quarters, so you'll still get some of that immersive, everyone has a cold kind of feeling. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. That's a really helpful thing for podcasts just starting out, It helps people to find us and keeps us on their radar, which is really important for new podcasts. And you can also find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. I prepared some questions that I've already sent to Neil beforehand. Uh, I won't throw you any curveballs. Well, maybe I will. You, you I don't can. know. You, you never know. But uh, some of them will be more of a general kind of discussion, and then we'll get into the paper a little bit more. So if uh, if you got lost in the last you know, several minutes, this will help us kind of get back on track, and then we'll have a broader Q&A at the end. So if anything sparks you, hold on to it, write it down, and you can toss it to Neil yourself if I don't bring it up. So, Neil, uh, just to start out, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what do you like to research, and what areas of philosophy are you working on, what are you reading right now that you're excited about, I mean, you're doing this, um, but for folks who aren't familiar with your work, and, are, you know, maybe this might be the first time that they've heard anything from you, what are you up to, what's yeah, your deal? Yeah, sure, okay, um, and I should say, Dean was nice enough to send the questions to me beforehand, but I, like, purposefully didn't, like, prepare too much of an answer, so we could still have some of that, some of the feel of a, of a real interview, so... You know, yeah. Don't blame me. Um, I, I didn't. I didn't write out scripted answers. I thought that would kind of defeat the point. No, so I, I scanned through to make sure I could actually say something about each of them. But um, yeah, in terms of sort of what I'm working on right now, I mean, it is mostly this. So it's sort of the uh, I'm working on a, a two-part project. So the first of which is sort of uh, just right now called expressionism in phenomenology, and I'm going to do the work I sort of. And I sort of so the first point I had in here. If we need to figure out what this is and what it means, that's kind of what I'm working on in part one. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how I'm going to lay it all out yet, but that's sort of the main part. So the, and the main figures of that will be Hostero, Merleau-Ponty, and Deleuze, 
Um, prob- maybe a little bit of Heidegger. Someone was just telling me recently that Heidegger's got an early course on expression that I should look at because he does some similar stuff. So I'm going to see if I can work that in as well because um, it wasn't full enough already. So let's put Heidegger in too. <laughs> um, and then the second part I want to do with that is then taking the account of spirituality and ex- spiritual expression that I'll develop in that part and really sort of putting that to work in philosophy of religion and sort of saying, what does this mean? And I think what I want to engage with there especially is um, – I want to do that, I think, through a close reading of Michel Henry and his account of life and, and auto-affection. And I think there's a lot there that needs a deeper engagement. What I'm hoping to, to be able to do, and I've got a piece coming out online later in October that kind of starts to do this, but <laughs> Michel Henry, he's a French phenomenologist and sort of theological thinker. And, and um, he's got a really eclectic oeuvre otherwise. Like he's got stuff that he does on, like he's got a book called I Am the Truth and Words of Christ, which are really like, Christ-centered, even biblical-centered, like, readings of of phenomena, but that are very Christian in nature. And then he's got stuff on, like, Marx and Freud, and then he's got something on barbarism, and and sort of all over the place. And actually, what I'm hoping is this kind of reading helps us make sense of what Henri is up to. Barbarism is a sort of spirit of the age in this sense, and he's trying to articulate this account of spirituality and how that looks in, in, in material practice. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to work on later. Great. So that's what you're up to now. Let's rewind even a tiny bit more sure. and just find out uh, what got you into doing philosophy as a Christian yeah, scholar. Yeah, yeah. How has that, um, how have those two things come together? How does philosophy seem to illuminate your everyday life? I mean, it seems like that's what you're working on yeah. here right now. Yeah. Uh, so how does how has that happened? And then in your own kind of autobiography, I guess, as a scholar, how has faith kind of also informed your philosophical research? Yeah, yeah, good. Um yeah, so I mean, it's one of those questions. I don't really know like how it happened. It just sort of happened, right? Like so I think I mean in a lot of ways, my dad's here so he can he can tell you the truth. I've always <laughs> been a kid who asked a lot of questions. Dad will say yes, that's true. Um right? And so sort of trying to figure stuff out has always been something that I've wrestled with. Right? And I was fortunate to grow up in a place in a in a house where I could do that and it was sort of encouraged. I know there are a lot of people who grow up Christian who have questions and that really gets shut down at an early age, and I don't think that's helpful. But I was I was encouraged in that and nurtured in that. Um, maybe this is why it gets shut down. People are like, less worried you'll lose your face and more worried you'll become a philosopher. You'll like, turn into Neil. Nobody <laughs> wants that for their kids. So let's just steer them on a different path and then we don't have to worry about it. Um, but I, I think, I mean, I really do think that's where a lot of it comes from, right? It's just sort of trying to think through and make sense of, of, of some of these things, right? And, and, and yeah, I, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm a person who's sort of cursed with the... the I just, I just, I just like things to make sense before I do them, uh, and 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 and, I, and and to do that, I gotta try to figure it out. And so I think that's really what sort of launched me into looking at these bigger questions. And then I was fortunate enough, like I said, sort of the house I was I was raised in was encouraged those kinds of questions. Um, and then when I was a, I did my undergrad at Calvin, and Jamie Smith came. My last year at Calvin was his first year, so I had him and a few other people there who really sort of encouraged this in sort of a certain philosophical bent and sort of, you know, and, and Henry Ludekaisen and Clarence Joldersma and Jimmy Smith are really the ones who steered me into continental philosophy. Um, and that sort of sent me here as, as a master's student. And, and that was here where I really sort of found a way of really trying to wrestle through this or found people like Doy Weird and people like Jim and Hank and sort of followers of Doy Weird really trying to sort of make sense of these of these big picture questions in a way that was sort of integrally Christian, right? Sort of really motivated by what they think the Bible is all about, what they think a relationship with God is all about, and let that motivate how they're trying to answer these kind of questions. And so I think that was a large part of being here was really formative for that. And then just kind of 
you know, sending me off in at Boston College, getting into phenomenology more deeply and those kinds of questions. And they're seeing a lot of resonances. I mean, those of you who are familiar with Doi Weird will see a lot of resonances in the project I'm trying to do here is really a lot of what Doi Weird, I think, was, was up to and is trying to do. And I'm in some ways, I'm sort of trying to maybe translate that into a more contemporary idiom of, of, of phenomenology and trying to say, OK, here's here's how we can here's how using this language can help us make sense of Doi Weird a little bit differently. And here's how Doi Weird can help us make sense of these problems a little bit differently and sort of trying to sort of walk through both of those kind of camps. Yeah, that's a great segue into a question I had here. You've done a lot of research on the intersections of phenomenology and people of faith thinking through those problems as well. And that's kind of a contentious issue for some philosophers. It's an exciting issue for others. And yeah. that's something you've thought through. So, uh, you know, there are critics of what's been called the theological turn in phenomenology. And I know you're familiar with that. So could you just speak to that a little bit? Why are people suspicious yeah, of yeah. Christians engaging in that? Yeah. And how have you navigated that uh, debate yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um so I think that the suspicion arises, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things. One is there's just a, a quote Husserl gives in, in Ideas One, where he just sort of explicitly says, like, God lies outside the realm of what we can do phenomenology about, right? Phenomenology is really sort of looking at uh, the matters themselves to the things themselves, uh, to the matters themselves, the things at hand, and sort of in our experience of them, and that's where we're going to start our, our, our philosophizing from. Uh, and since God is never a matter that shows up in our perception, um, he just is something we can't talk about, especially not God qua God, right? Maybe you can have, and even Heidegger is doing this, right? You can have a phenomenology of religious experience, but you can't have a phenomenology of God because he's just not a phenomenon, right? And so that's the problem, I think. Um, and, and, and so that's the main problem that people have with it. And, and what follows from that is they then think, um, and Dominique Janicot is, is the main sort of proponent of, of, of putting away what he calls the theological turn. What he sees is sort of that the reason that people like Levinas and Marion and Henri are able to access theological things or able to deal with sort of, you know, religious questions is because, for Shaniko, because they've abandoned f the phenomenological method, right? That there are things in the phenomenological method that limit it to what phenomena we can talk about. And the only way to go outside that realm for Janico is to abandon the phenomenological method. And so he sees what they're doing as no longer phenomenology anymore. It's now theology. And, and Heidegger has a, as a, as a piece from a sort of earlier in Middish in his career where he sort of makes a distinction and sort of says somewhat famously, like phenomenology and theology make two, right? These are two different tasks we can pursue. And Heidegger would say both of them are legitimate tasks, but they're different tasks. Right? One examines the phenomena of our experience, and one is trying to talk about God, and those are different things. Um, and, and, and for myself, uh, in, in my book that, that Bob mentioned earlier, Futurity and Phenomenology, one of, the, one of the things I try to do in that book is show that actually people like Levinas, Derrida, right, the, the, the theological turn, so to speak, is really consistently developing and employing what is a very Husserlian methodology. Right? So the subtitle of that book is Promise and Method in Husserl, Levinas, and Derrida. And what I try to show is if we look at phenomenology through the lens of how it uses the future in terms of its temporality, we'll see a different methodology than the so-called static phenomenology of, of Husserl's early career. There's a much more focus on sort of what some people call the genetic phenomenology or the generative phenomenology of his later career. And in that mode, we can see what Levinas is doing and what these other sort of theological, so-called theological phenomenologists are doing. It's, it's, it, it, it's just phenomenology. It is, right? It's maybe a different sort or in a different stripe, but it's certainly phenomenology. It's certainly Husserlian phenomenology anyway, insofar as you want to 
say Husserl is a phenomenologist, then, then, then so are they. And so I, yeah, that's, that's sort of where I deal with the debate. I just don't think, I think if we're careful to what the method is and careful to what phenomenology is, we can see ways in which what they're doing is certainly within that stream. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and I wanted to ask you too, sort of following up on that, phenomenology seems to be one of the more sort of ecumenical philosophies insofar as uh, it's made a huge difference here in a Calvinist school, for example, at ICS, who's, that's been very invested in phenomenology. Uh, it's also famously uh, one of the kind of major languages the Roman Catholic Church yeah, has yeah. sort of chosen to dialogue with its age. Um, so what do you think it, it is about phenomenology that makes it a, a kind of ecumenically available mm. uh, way of thinking about the world? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a good question. I, th- I think... Um, so it's a good question, sort of, especially because I tend to think that the the phenomenological elements of of the Reformational tradition are actually really underappreciated in the Reformational tradition itself, right? I think here is one of the f- one of the very few and rare exceptions uh, here, being at the ICS, where phenomenology is really taken seriously, and I think a lot of um, a lot of the ways in which sort of the the reformational project has been rolled out have been much more influenced probably in part by because of Plantinga and Waltersdorf and their influence coming from sort of the North American side, um, sort of a more rational or a neo-Kantian approach. And I think the phenomenological part is as underappreciated, but you're right that it's always been there, right? Um, and I, I think what makes it so so fertile for for at least for religious thinkers or for thinking through questions of religion is the way in which, it does by by opening up uh, and complicate. Right? So Husserl himself says that the distinction between what he sees himself doing in phenomenology and what he sees Kant doing, and he says in a lot of ways he's continuing that product. But the big difference he sees between himself and Kant, he says, is while Kant more or less takes the subject as as given, what phenomenology is trying to do is understand how the subject is given and constituted, right? That's the big difference, he says, between his project and Kant's project. And I think by opening up the subject or the self in that way to say, what are the parts that, that, that by which we make sense of what the subject is or what I am and what are the parts that go into constituting the subject's ability to then constitute a world, I think in, in opening the subject up in that way, I think you really are then opening the door to all kinds of um, transcendental, at least, influences in, 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 in the subject. Uh, which then opens the door to both social political concerns and how those constitute the subject, but also then to the possibility of something like, you know, spiritual concerns, right? Suddenly it's not, the subject is not kind of self-generating or sort of the center of sovereign power. It does not become a god unto itself. And there are lots of critiques of sovereignty in the individualism and sort of its religious background from Derrida and others. Um, but I think that's a big part of it, right? Is, is, is if you just sort of take the power God used to have as God's the one who does what God wants to do and has the power to choose and sort of the ways that kind of gets transferred to the individual subject in modern philosophy in some ways. Um, you got to challenge that before you can make a space for sort of a, 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 a spirituality or a religiosity that kind of, is effective in in the everyday world, and I think by by the way it's phenomenology's done that, I think that's why it's you see so many religious scholars kind of tapping into that and saying there's something here that's helpful, and there's something here that's really working to break up some of these old dualisms and break up some of these old ways of doing it, and and, and let's try this as a methodology to see if we can use this to articulate what we want to talk about. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, you didn't prepare a response, but the segues are actually very easy to find, so uh, <laughs> that's very good. Because the next question I had was essentially what. What brought you to think about the role of spirit, how it's been underplayed in phenomenology? I mean, 
sometimes people work on problems just because they're problems. But uh, I think in your case, uh, it's clearly motivated by some, you know, you've seen something in phenomenology that has been sort of sidelined or maybe not brought up in the way that you want to bring it up. Uh, What kinds of problems in everyday life were you responding to where you felt like, well, I'm going to go to phenomenology and think about spirit? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, yeah, I think that's good. If I if I start from sort of the, I mean, because there, there's some theoretical, I can talk from the philosophical side about what led me to it. But I think in terms of sort of the practical issues is, you know, I've, I've grown up in this sort of reformational tradition my whole life. And so sort of grown up learning that all of life is religion and, and these kinds of things, right? that everything we do is spiritually significant. But it's actually, you know, when I, when talking to people who aren't from that tradition, who either are, you know, Christian, but religious of other, of other persuasions or um, who aren't religious at all, right? And and they're just kind of like, what does that mean, right? Like, and and I, I remember I had a friend in my PhD program um, who was not himself religious, and so when I sort of was trying to tell him about this background I came from, and sort of all of life is religious, he's like, what is what does that really mean? Is does that like does it mean if like when a boy dog humps another boy dog, he should feel guilty about that? Like, what does it really mean that all of life is religious, right? And I was like, that's it doesn't mean that, but. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, but it is like trying to answer that question. Like, what do we really mean when we say that, right? What does it mean to say all of life is spiritually religious? What makes the way I walk on the sidewalk a significant factor, right? There was a question that, um, one of my former colleagues posed to Cal Searveld once. Cal Searveld, of course, for those of you who don't know, he's a, a sort of a legend in this, the reformational tradition about people who say like all of life is meaningful, right? And so someone asked him once, one of my former colleagues asked him once, like, so tell me like, what is, what is, Christian toilet paper look like, right? And then he got in trouble. But Cal was like, no, that's a really <laughs> good question, actually. Right? Like, I, 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 we do have to, like, if we say everything, then we mean everything. And, like, so what does that mean, right? Uh, what does it mean, as I sometimes tell my students, what does it mean to poop for Jesus? Like, I don't know the answer to that question, right? And so trying to figure that out, right? What If we're going to say these words, they have to be meaningful, right? And so what does it mean? How, trying to find a way in which all the things we do in our life are somehow spiritually significant right how, how do we do that and obviously it has to to me anyway it sort of it became clear we have to have a different view of of, of matter and what material is if we're going to try to make sense of these very mundane things like like going to the bathroom and stuff right um and so it was through that lens then i think that sort of i turned to phenomenology as a way of since phenomenology is 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 really dedicated to overturning this sort of Cartesian dualism of sort of material stuff and, and spirit and, and you know soul stuff over here and, and sort of really working on fusing those back together, I think, let's see if there's a way here to sort of rethink the material in a way that lets the spiritual be part of it in, in, in a significant way that would then help us explain how that's happening or what that means when we want to talk about all of life is religious. Yeah, I wonder what you'd make. There's a footnote in your paper. I had the benefit of reading it beforehand, obviously, so I could write these questions. Uh, and in the footnote, you say, you talk a little bit about the phenomenon of people saying they're spiritual but not yeah, religious. Yeah. And it seems like maybe what people are trying to say when they say something like that is something kind of close to what you're getting at, which is yeah. that, well, I, I don't, I'm not religious in the sense that I subscribe to all these bodies of belief, but, you know, I think the world is expressive. I understand myself as an expressive person or connected yeah. to some kind of divine yeah. whatever. Uh, but you kind of have a nuanced take on what people might be saying. So what do you yeah. think people are saying when they're spiritual but not religious? And what are you yeah. saying when you make yeah, that distinction? Yeah, yeah. I mean... So I, I, I think technically all the footnotes said is there might be something important here. And I didn't say there was. So I can't <laughs> promise you that it's actually useful. But um, what I think is 
Right. So, so I, okay. So first, what, when people say spiritual, but not religious, I think what they mean in general is something like, yeah, I kind of sort of believe some of the Jesus God stuff that I've been raised with, but I really don't like the church and the way it's kind of playing itself out. And so I don't want to be part of that. I want to be religious in that sense because I don't like that. But I, yeah, I think there's probably something more than just stuff out there. Right. Um, and I think that's part of what they're trying to say, right? And, and I think what I hope is that a sense of spiritual but not religious helps us uncover, right, or helps sort of get at that and say what that might mean, right? Because there's two things that one, that might mean. One is, yeah, there is probably some kind of transcendent reality out there in the world somehow, and I probably believe that's true, but I'm not really that interested in figuring out what that means for my life. So I'm not going to like figure that out. I'm just going to continue to believe there's a thing out there and then I'm going to go do my life over here every day. Right. Uh, that's one thing it can mean. Um, but what I'm hoping here to sort of develop is to sort of say, I mean, to say that in a way they're getting us somewhere, like all of us are spiritual in this sense. There is something that's driving our lives. That's pushing us forward. Right. That, that is making us do the things that we're doing. Um, and whether, we go to these certain institutions that label themselves religious or not, we're still being driven spiritually in, in, in these regards and in these ways. Um, and so I think right, what I'm hoping is that kind of gives us a way that we could try to define what it means to be spiritual, but not religious. We would then have to go back to those people who identify that way and sort of, is this actually what you meant? And <laughs> see if that help, if they find that helpful or not, I don't know. But I think that's where I would sort of want to go and sort of say, let, let's talk about it in this way and in sort of they are maybe getting at some deeper truth, which is to say that that in religious institutions that they may have been a part of. Maybe that maybe the spirit wasn't there that much. Sure. Right? Or at least not that not the spirit of God. Sure. Maybe, sure. Something like that. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. And maybe we could talk a little bit more about how you expand spirits to include the spirits of the age, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to quote something I pulled out, and you highlighted it as you were giving the paper. I think this is a really interesting point. So you say, Today, something like consumerism is certainly the dominant spirit of American culture, but most religious practitioners would not feel the need to choose between their religious, that is Christian in this case, faith, and consumerism. That is, they would feel comfortable being both Christian and a consumer in a way they would not feel comfortable claiming to be both Christian and Muslim. So it seems to me, I think that's really helpful, uh, but one thing that I was just sort of thinking about um, is that it seems to me a lot of Christians actually do kind of understand a spirit of the age problem. It's just that the spirits they identify are kind of unsophisticated. So it might be um, the specter of communism or the gay agenda or a variety of other kind of conspiratorial, um, you know, forces that are out there. And they articulated even in those terms that these are spirits out there trying to get you you know it's the church's job to oppose that spirit and uh, cordon itself off so do you think that um does your research help to complexify those problems do you think that they've identified something similar but they have made all the wrong judgments and conclusions about it how do you relate to that kind of phenomenon yeah no i think so my hope would be that um sort of the, the kind of spirit i'm trying to develop here certainly complexifies some of those issues insofar as what I want to say is like, let's focus on sort of the, the, the pre-rational, the affective forces that are sort of driving our lives and that are sort of pushing us to do things. Right. Um, and I think if you're looking for it at that sort of depth level, it, it, it seems unlikely to me or much less likely that we would want to call something like the gay agenda as, as, as something that's really going to be a, you know, that's really trying to grab our hearts or something like that, right? Like I, 
I don't, I don't, I don't see, you could try to, maybe there's some kind of push for tolerance of everything and that the gay agenda is a part of that or something. You could, I mean, maybe, but I think a lot of part where some of these diagnoses come from, come precisely from not looking at spirituality in this deeper way and, and keeping religiosity as a matter primarily of one beliefs and then two ethics and very narrowly defined series of ethics, right? I mean, in terms of the consumerism thing, I think one of the, one of the ways you see this is, you know, in North America, the church, especially the evangelical church, probably, right? They focus a lot on like sexual morality as a way of making sure you're a good Christian, right? You, there's certain things you have to do and those have to do with, you know, reproductive rights and those have to do with, um, you know, homosexuality and these kind of, that's what it means, right? And you get sermons about that. You'll, you'll hear a lot of talk about that, but almost nobody preaches on, you know, uh, coveting. Right. Which is a much more pressing problem, right? Like, I mean, sure. we are confronted with a world in which, I mean, I don't know what advertising is if not sanctioned coveting, right? Like its job is to make you want something you don't have, right? Like coveting is our sort of mode of being in the world in North America. We are built to want to things we don't have. And that's what drives us to keep working and keep making money and acquiring more things. And we're being constantly stirred. You're not good enough. You need something more, right? Coveting is kind of like our thing. And but we just avoid it. Like we just don't talk about it in church so much. We're not engaging that as an issue, right? Um, and the cynical side of me says the reason we latch on to these other issues is because it's a lot easier to make as litmus tests since I'm not really worried I have to deal with, right? If I'm fairly comfortably heterosexual, homosexuality is a great problem to pick on because I don't have to worry I'm going to wake up tomorrow and be like, oh man, I suddenly want to have sex with another man. Like I don't have to worry about it. This is a problem other people have to struggle with. So let's highlight that because now I'm in the clear, right? I can be a good Christian easily because the, the litmus tests are things I don't have to deal with. Um, and I don't think that's all of what's going on there. Like I said, that's the cynical side of me that, that wants to get there. I think there are other things, right? And it has to do with how we read the Bible and those kinds of things. But I think even there, right, we, if, we, if we focus on the Bible in a very sort of rational belief-based way as a sort of a textbook of beliefs, things we are to think and the implications that have for ways we are to act. I think, I guess, let me articulate this. I think the danger is I see a lot of places in, in contemporary North American Christianity, right, where if you sort of focus, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, to be a Christian is, right, to be a Christian means I have to believe certain things about God. And if I believe that God exists, then I believe that God wrote the Bible. And if I believe that God wrote the Bible, then I believe that I should obey what the Bible tells me to do. And so insofar as I believe that the Bible tells me to do X, Y, and Z, I need to do X, Y, and Z to be a good Christian to show that I my beliefs and that I'm committed, right? Well, if you paid attention, everything I just said about what it means to be Christian, God doesn't actually do anything. It's all about me. What I believe, what I do, how well I stick with it. It, it. it is a Christianity in which God is entirely, if not absent, you know, transcendent in a certain way. That is God, it's not about what God's doing, right? And I have a, a friend who's a pastor who, who told me once, and this always stuck with me. Um, if God is not the subject of your action verbs, then you're not preaching the gospel of grace, right? And I think God is not the subject of very many action verbs, Right? And so part of the, the, my turn here for spirituality is trying to recover like a way in which God is still at work in the world in a really practical and everyday way, in a way that we need to acknowledge and be able to say, you know, our faith is about what God is doing, not about what we're doing. Yeah, no, that's really helpful. Um, we've got just a couple more questions and we'll just open it up here. Uh, so one thing throughout your paper I was thinking about is the problem of ideology. 
Yeah. Uh, so you know how spirit shapes what we might call our imagination or our social imaginary, however we want to talk about you know, the conceptual air that we breathe. Uh, but what does it mean to talk about material spirit in an age where something like global capitalism or white supremacy are the dominant spirits yeah. that seem to organize our material lives, even yeah, down yeah. to the way in which we react to uh, our churches and that sort of a thing? How how can we think about our embodied material spirituality in relationship to these ideological forces, which we're kind of talking about already yeah, with respect yeah. to consumerism? But um, I guess I just kind of want to push that a little bit further yeah, and sure. see, uh, you know, how does this relate to something like the problem of ideology as another kind of problem related to spirit? Yeah, no, I think that's good because I think, um, right, so part of it is even, even in the way you are articulating the question, right, you sort of sort of talked about ideology and sort of social imagining as ways of getting, I, I can't remember exactly, you said something to the effect of, right, ways of getting at sort of the conceptual air that we breathe, right? And I think that's part of the problem with ideology critique. Well, at least with some versions of ideology critique, right? Is it remains conceptual, right? It remains idea-based or belief-based. And while ideas and beliefs certainly do have an effect on how we do things, I don't, I'm not discounting that at all. But I think uh, primarily that's not the primary motivating force in a lot of these things you talk about. You talk about white supremacy, right? There are very few people who are white supremacists who are motivated by an actual belief that black people are inferior to white people, right? If you ask most people, are you racist? They'll say no, because by that they mean, I don't think in my head that white people are superior to other people, right? And what they're missing is, right, those pre-rational ways, those things that shape even our rational discourse and shape the way we theoretically respond to something like an athlete kneeling for for the, the, the national anthem, right? And the way that those responses are shaped by other forces that are at work, right? Um, and, and, and so material spirituality, I'm hoping, gives us a way to sort of start to try to articulate some of these other things as ways of saying, I, I'm not saying you believe these things. What I'm saying is how, we need to explain how it can be the fact that you don't believe this, but your actions kind of show it still. Right. And that's an interesting problem. And we have to figure that out somehow. Right. And you have to sort of try to get at that, because I, I do think um, if you take something like like white supremacy, I, I'm actually giving a paper in a few weeks at another conference on trying to analyze sort of the Trump phenomenon through some of this lens of expression. Right. And one of the things I want to say there is I think I think what makes Trump so divisive is 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 precisely on this question of, 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 of expression. That is, I think for some people, Trump expresses a deep social, spiritual, whatever, ideological problem. And Trump is now just sort of the embodiment, the expression of everything that it is, rape culture, white supremacy, right? all these sort of oppression culture, right? And he's the epitome of it, right? And so we, you know, people see him and they see him as an expression of this deeper force. And so to reject or embrace Trump is for these people to, em to embrace or to reject rape culture or oppression culture, right? It's not a, even about Trump the person. Trump the person is, in this sense, almost divorceable, at least theoretically divorceable from Trump as the sort of the expression of a certain phenomenon, right? Um, whereas for other people, he's just a guy who says stuff. Some of it I agree with, some of it I don't. But... Right. And so part of it is a question of meaning of, of how things mean. Right. That, that is for some people, they're able to see material practices as meaningful, as expressing a deep sense. Right. And for other people, meaning is primarily, if not only a linguistic phenomenon. 
And so we know Trump isn't racist because he says, I'm not racist. Right. They asked him. He said, no, that that's that. Right. Um, whereas for other. Right. And so part of it is is getting people to kind of see how material practices, including not just sort of things I voluntarily do, but even sort of what, what, what we might call material structures or institutional structures, which are also a complex web of material practices, right? And how those have been set up and how those already express certain affective forces and not others, right? And, and trying to sort of get people to see that there's a meaning in the way a city is laid out, that that means something or, or whatever, right? That materiality has a meaning to it already. Um, and I think that's part of the problem because we, we try to sort of convince people of our points by sort of saying, well, no, he's... Right, this means this, and what we're missing is that for people who are disagreeing with us, at least for some people, they're not saying, no, it means something else. They're saying, you're just reading a meaning where there is none. Right? Right. It's not that it means something else. It just doesn't mean anything. Right? And I think that's part of trying to get at, I don't know if that answers your question quite, but trying to get at, right? Like, that's where I think this account can hopefully help us really develop, a, 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 give us a language and help us, give us a way of sort of talking about some of these issues like white supremacy or institutionalized racism or institutionalized sexism as issues that are not primarily concept-based or rational. They're, they're operating on a different level. And we have to help people see how that can be a thing that happens before we can convince them that that is the thing that's happening, right? And I think that's what we have to sort of, that's, that's a step there. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm just going to ask a last question, which is sort of a open-ended and then we can throw it up in, and as soon as Neil's done, you can raise a hand, and I'll just let you field your own sure. questions. That's, That's all right. Yeah. Uh, so what do you hope that Christian philosophers might be able to gain by thinking about spirit in the terms that you've argued for here? So you make some strategic appeals at the end about how this might help to expand and avoid some of the dangers uh, that have been worked out with respect to the liturgical turn or whatever you yeah. want to call it in Christian philosophy. Um, what What do you hope that this opens up for your colleagues? Yeah, um, I think one of them is... is uh, is like I said in the paper, a deeper engagement with questions of what I, what I'm here calling, and I don't know if this terminology will prove, end up proving helpful or not, but what I'm now calling like spirits of the age, right? I, I, do, I do think we we got to wrestle as Christians with, you know, the, with consumerism in North America, right? Like this is the idol that we're facing as a church, right? And, and, and uh, Timothy Keller and Kyle Eidelman are two sort of more popular writers who are starting to get at some of these issues of idolatry, in, in, as not just things we believe, but as, as other the possibility of other things being idols or sort of right, being the spirit that drives us. And I, and I think that sort of religiously, that's something we have to be able to articulate. And as philosophers, right, I think that's part of where we have to be able to be there and help people articulate this in a way that makes sense, right? And as I was talking about just a little bit earlier ago, like help to start to articulate how things mean so that people can start to see these deeper levels of meaning at work. And and so for me, I think that would be the, the, the real, I've got a... Um, uh, there's a book coming out on sort of uh, Christian philosophy, sort of where are we now, this kind of thing. Um, and I got a piece in there where I sort of say, I think the task of Christian philosophers is something like discerning the spirits of the age, right? With, and with a certain academic apparatus, absolutely. But also with the, uh, I think we also have to make sure as, as Christian philosophers, especially, that the work we're doing is, 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 is helpful for the broader Christian community and the broader world, right? That it's not, we can't just speak at, panels where we talk to six other people. I mean, I think we need to do that work. I'm actually more proponent of that work than a lot of people are. I think that rigorous academic work that maybe only five or six people understand, I think we that has to get done because I think it does make a difference. I think it is helping to clarify something. But I think we also have to make sure that we sort of properly 
honor it and acknowledge those who take that work and then sort of are able to translate it for others. And, say, and this is what this means for these other parts of life. Or this is what it means for how we live that out. And I think we have to value that. And my hope is, you know, something like like discerning spirits of the age gives us a way to do that. Right? That what we want to do is look at the deeper forces at work in our culture and try to start to analyze, you know, through an analysis of these deeper structures of meaning, through an analysis of sort of cultural and social practices. And obviously this is not the task of Christian philosophers alone. Um, but to start to analyze these things and say, okay, we need to understand what's really driving us so we can start to sort of maybe take an honest look at ourselves and say, those of us who self-identify as Christians, are we really being driven primarily by the Spirit of God or are we being driven by the Spirit of something else, right? And, 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 and is this other Spirit that driving us, right? Is God just become another tool that's being used to further my own consumerist desires, right? Is God just becoming another tool that's working towards the consumerist message of sort of, I need to get what I want, that will make me happy, right? And so God becomes another thing that I need to get when it makes me happy, right? He guarantees something for me if I'm in the right books with him. He he guarantees me a certain, and I don't just mean Joel Austin, who's like the most obvious example of this, right? Um, but I think for a lot of other ways too, right? Like it guarantees me satisfaction of knowing I've got eternal life taken care of, or it guarantees me this. And in, in so far as it does that, I'll keep it around. But once it doesn't, I cut it because I'm still in control of it, right? God is still a tool that I use, that I believe in, that I wield. And I, I think that's problematic. listening if you're tired of my voice you're in luck because in the next episode grace carhart another junior member at ics will ask neil some questions from the audience if you're tired of neil's voice well you're out of luck and you have to wait a little bit longer be on the lookout for that episode and in the meantime head on over to itunes and give us a review you can also find us on social media we are on facebook as the institute for christian studies and on twitter at inscher i-n-s-c-h-r you can also send us an email with further thoughts or corrections or comments, etc. at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu.